Okay, so one of the best courses I ever took in seminary uh, was actually not far from here up in Nyack, and it was taught by the classic German uh, super intelligent professor. He was kind of bald with, you know, hair all over, and he was always rubbing his fingers through it, and it was always standing up and everything. And the class only met once a week, and it met for three hours. And I would drive up there and sit in this course, and I learned from the first time that, that you needed to get there, you needed to sit down, you needed to have your yellow pad of paper. Yes, this was before the Internet and personal computers and everything. Okay, so you had your yellow pad, which I'm still very affectionate uh, towards, and your pen in hand, because when he walked through that door, he started talking before he ever got to a lectern. And by the time he got to a lectern, he had reviewed everything he had done the week before, and you had better be ready to get going with the rest of it. And, and uh, it was like crazy. And if you, you weren't ready, it was... And then you were supposed to take a break halfway through. You'd get to like two hours and a quarter, and he'd be scratching his bald head and say, oh, yeah, aren't we supposed to take a break now? Oh, okay, I guess we'll take a break. You know, by that point, I mean, why take the break? Let's just finish, you know. <laughs> One of the finest courses I've ever taken. Now, one of the reasons I tell you that is because if you weren't here last week, uh, but I'm just going to pick up right where I was because this message today is so important coming out of what we looked at last week. So just, you know, got your yellow pad and pen ready. Here we go. The quick review, and then we hit it running. Last week we saw our amazement before an incredibly other God. How great and amazing He is in all of His greatness in one of these incredibly perplexing passages of Scripture that finishes with the person writing it ending in this doxology, this incredible word of praise to say, the only answer to all of this is giving God all His glory and our accepting our place before his otherness, saying he is that great. So let's call that great here. And then his ownership of us and his credible, incredible goodness of us, we'll call that over here, and this indescribable love for he has, for, that he has for us in these two huge realities that are attention. How can he be so great before whom we can't even stand and so good that he would love us so indescribably. Two tensions that cannot be solved, they must exist together. And so all we can do is praise this mighty God and say, you are God. Now, as true as as those tensions are that I presented last week, there's another amazing reality that I want us to talk about today that is much more palatable and apparently very necessary because it's very common in Scripture for a very obvious reason. God is so great, it can be a bit much for us. And God knows that. And so He addresses that repeatedly. So let me give you a few examples. Moses thinks he's a total failure. He's wandering through a wilderness having murdered somebody and failed before God and he's just kind of destined to this wilderness, wandering around, sees a burning bush, comes near and he's told this is holy ground and he realizes he's 
looking at a manifestation of God himself. And so he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That's a very interesting concept because later he becomes this amazing, humble instrument, human, in the hands of God, so humble, God calls him the most humble man on earth, and a friend of God, and he actually dares later to say, remember remember the bush? I was afraid to look at you. Could I see you? And God says, no one can look at me and live. That's, that's the other thing, right? That's the, before a holy God, no one can stand. But i tell you what, I'll, I'll show you just kind of the, the back end of my glory. And when he sees that, his whole countenance has changed. His face actually literally glows for a period of time. So God in all of his greatness then at that burning bush back there looks at him, tells him what he wants to do and says, listen, I will be with you. I'm going to go with you and I'm going to help you. Incredibly other. And then this very real comforting presence. We think we want to hear from God. We get frustrated with God and we say, I wish you would just speak to me. Well, the people of Israel, in Exodus, his, the voice of God is described as a screaming trumpet. And they get to a point where they say to Moses, please, please, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us anymore or we will die. We can't even stand that anymore that and so God in his understanding way gave the people of Israel prophets priests and kings to be messengers of his to his people whether they listened to him or not until the day came when the perfect prophet priest and king would come in his son Jesus Christ another example Isaiah Another one of these prophets that just in his own righteousness is calling down these woes on these sinful people and they deserved it because they were just awful. That's the first five chapters of his book and then in chapter six, he is stunned because God catches him up in a vision and he sees the Lord. And to that he says, woe is me for I am ruined. All of that otherness And then God looks at him and he sends the seraph down with a burning coal out of his altar, touches his lips and says, your sin is forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. God in all of his greatness. And then this amazing love in his forgiving sin. Jesus, got to give you more examples. Chapter 11, speaking of woes being called down on sinful people, and the cities around where he grew up, the incarnate God had lived for 30-some years, and they ignored him, they didn't listen to him, and he calls down these woes on these cities, saying, it's going to be worse for you people because of your unbelief of my teachings than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, which are kind of the, you know, the epitome of sinful behavior. It's going to be worse for you guys than for them. That's the beginning of chapter 11. By the end of chapter 11, you know what he's saying? And Lord, I am, Father, I am so grateful that you have hidden these things from the intelligent and you've revealed them to the simple and the children. And then he says, and I welcome anybody who is weary and heavy laden. Come to me 
and I will give you rest. You see this incredibly other God, and then he realizes, man, these people can't handle it. Listen, I'm here now. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Or with his own disciples, just before he's going to be crucified, he says to them, listen, here's a prophecy. It says that I will strike the shepherd, that's him, and the sheep will scatter. Well, no, 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 no. And they all start in with their, no, even if I have to die, I'll never leave you. No, we're going to be faithful to you. We're your disciples. He goes, no, you're going to be scattered. Uh, You can't even handle it. But that's okay. After I'm risen, I will go ahead of of you in Galilee. Now, these guys were from Galilee. He not only knew that they were going to fail him, he knew where they were going to run. And he says, I'll be there when you get there. This is what our God does over and over again. We can't handle. I know what you want me to say, right? (laughs) We can't handle the truth. We can't handle God in all of His greatness. So He says to us, let me show it to you this way. And that's what today is all about. Last week, in all of His greatness, I asked you, let God be God, please. But I want you to also see that if we're going to finish well, we've got to consider another great ending that I'm going to in these days. These great endings that teach us that what we've learned is to be applied to our future and that the future is to be a part of our perspective in the present. So that slide's going to come up here and you're going to see that. This is what I want us to see, that what we've learned in the present has to do with our future and that our future is, the future is a supposed to affect our perspective in the present and that these great endings are so memorable because there's something in them and their context and their meaning that if they are well applied will help us finish well and I want us to get to one today that personalizes this incredibly other God this great God who's good but I want you to see how personal he is as well And so this great ending, this doxology, this benediction comes from Hebrews chapter 13, which says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. This is a most personal ending that comes out of the book of Hebrews, which I believe is the most human handling of both our Savior and ourselves. It's an amazing letter of managing and grappling with and showing us and revealing how very human we are in all of our weakness and how human our God became in Jesus Christ. So the first lesson on finishing well was to be careful. We needed to take an honest look at ourselves out of the book of Jude. And then last week, I said, be amazed by this incredible God because that ending out of Romans was this awestruck gaze at God. And now, lesson number three on finishing well, not be careful, not be amazed, but be assured. I want you to see an affirming view that God has of you. 
It's a logical flow on this mind-boggling message we had last week. And there's two images that I want you to see. I created these others before because I wanted you to see God in all of his greatness and God in all of his goodness, left and right. That's a tension that always exists. I want you to see this today. An up and a down. Because these are the two images that he gives us in Hebrews. And I want to read now from chapter 4 and into chapter 5. I already quoted for you the second passage, which is in chapter 13. But let me read about the first of these images on the high priest. This is the up. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Then he goes on in chapter 5 to say, Every high priest is selected from among men, the people, and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. Now that's why I have an up, because this is the person who represents us to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, all of the human ones, listen, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sins, sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. That would be the earthly high priests. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he's called by God just as Aaron was. Now, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God the Father said to him, you are my son, today I become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now listen to what he did as our high priest. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So here's the high priest, that's the up, and then we're going to look at the shepherd and the down. So the first part is the, nope, go back please, to the high priest, 414 through 5, now, there's a typo up there. It actually goes through verse 10 of chapter 5. I need to speak to the person who made this mistake on this slide. Probably going to be in a lot of trouble and may be fired this week. I don't know. And, and if I continue to talk to myself this way, everybody's going to be worried about me. But anyway, so it goes to verse 10. I want you to see what we see in this passage. In chapter 4, those last verses, at the risk of... Um, uh, being less than reverent, and I kind of heard about this from one person. This is kind of a, I know a guy. Uh, now, I don't mean to minimize God in this, but this is, this is kind of a situation where you have one of those direct connections, you know, somebody that you know and that you can go to and you get what you need. 
I never had this happen to me, but my brother who is, you know, high in law enforcement and uh, homeland security has on a couple of occasions with weapons on him walked with his badge right through security and right down a gangway into an airplane and right up to my mother or my sister and my brother-in-law and just said, you guys come with me and walk them right out. No problems, no questions, no nothing because they knew a guy, okay? Now, that's what this is kind of like. Look at the first words there. Since, therefore, we have a great high priest. This makes this absolutely certain. There's no question about it. And it's Jesus himself. And look at where he is. He's ascended into heaven, and he is representing us before God the Father. That's pretty amazing. He is there representing you up. He stands before the Father and says, I know this one. I am his or her representative. Now, what makes him qualified? Well, look what he's accomplished in verse 15. Look at what he did. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He did it. He accomplished it. He gets it. And it's interesting that some of your translations will say, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Empathize is a better word. You know the difference between those two? Sympathizing is sharing a feeling. Empathizing is sharing an experience. He doesn't just feel where you are. He's been there. And that's why he can represent you so effectively before the Father. Because he shared that experience. And then he offers this incredible freedom, this all-access pass into the presence of God. This access into his dwelling. And you'll notice that the throne that he's on, that we can so boldly approach, is a throne of grace. You're going to stand before a throne of God. And it's either a throne of grace if you embrace this representative of yours now, or it's going to be a throne of judgment. And in that, he will be just in his judgment. But we have the opportunity to enter before a throne of grace. And he isn't there just to smile and say, hey, how's it going? He's there to meet our needs, to help us in our time of need. Look at what he does. Now, how can I be sure of that? Well, that's what chapter 5, those verses that I read about. The first three verses describe that God established this high priest so there was somebody to represent us before God because we can't stand God. He's so other. There had to be somebody to represent us. And this Jesus became that one. This was God's idea. He didn't take it on himself. And then verses 7 through 10 talk about the very human description of what he did on our behalf. This total dependence, this absolute submission, this learning what we need to learn through what he suffered, and then completing what we could not complete, and he becomes the source of salvation for all who obey him. Get this, here's the point. It's written right there. God is satisfied with your representative before him. Are you? Is Jesus enough? We, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we have this kind of a twisted spiritual pride sometimes that questions whether Jesus is really enough. Because we feel badly about ourselves 
and, and we feel like we failed too many times and, and, and maybe he can't forgive me again or whatever. A false humility. Or maybe you just don't think Jesus is all that. But he is. And he is your high priest. Can you be satisfied with that? If you had to have, because you cannot stand before a holy God, have one person represent you before God, who's it going to be? You going to do it on your own? Or are you going to say, I, I know this guy, let's just call it all capital letters, okay? <laughs> Who knows me and who took my place. You know, we talk about the offense of the gospel, and there is an offense to this gospel in that every one of us has to come to a point where we recognize that we need this representative, that we cannot do it by ourselves, that we are sinners. And that's true. We all have to admit that. But how about the offense towards God if in all the God's goodness he has sent someone to take our place to be our representative and we look at it and go, yeah, I don't know. There's an offense of the gospel towards the very God who provided it. All that work, all that uh, sacrifice, and we minimize it. Why would we do that? You see, God is a holy other, and yet he's good. And so what he's done up and down is he's taken somebody and said, let me be your representative before this holy God. Can you trust that? Well, let me convince you with the next image, which is him as this great shepherd. And now we're over at the great ending in chapter 13, those verses that I quoted. This 13, verse 20, now may the God of peace, So now look at this down image, this shepherd. He's a God of peace. And he looks at you and he goes, I care. The certainty and the effectiveness of this high priest makes the war be over. It's done. We were in war with God, no doubt. Because we walked away, we were in sin, we failed, and before him we were at war. And God, through all that he's done that I've described, says now, the war's over. Now may the God of peace, or as Paul says in Romans 5.1, since we have peace with God. He did it. Okay, so here's the question you wouldn't still be at war with God, would you? He's on a throne of grace and mercy. He does not consider you an enemy if you trust in that representative. And get to the end of the book, these people presumably have understood, and so he says, now may the God of peace. You wouldn't be at war with God, would you? And the concept of peace is not just the absence of war. It's this shalom concept from the Old Testament of completeness, of soundness, of welfare, of of well-being, of wellness. About your best interest in God's mind. Now, you wouldn't be wondering if he still cares about you, would you? Because he does. That's what he means. I want you well. 
be assured that God considers the war over. That he has your back, that he has your best interest in mind. And that's just the beginning. That's the God of peace. Who threw now these words of importance? The blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So this who threw, he purchased you. He put his money where his mouth was. And how did he do that? He promised to do it. That's the covenant. Then he sheds his blood. That's the actual act of doing it. He didn't just come to the earth and walk around and go, oh, I feel bad for these guys. I taste this a little bit. Yeah, I can see where it's going to. And then nobody pays the price. He paid the price. He shed his blood. And then he's risen from the dead to prove it so that historically we can know that it was accomplished. So he promises that he would. He sheds his blood in what he did, and then he is resurrected as a record of what happened. What that means is that he became great up and our shepherd down. And we can be assured of this, that he earned that and no one else has that name. And he purchased you. He purchased you. He owns you. He wants you to be his. Wow, what great assurance. And then he goes on to say, and then that great shepherd, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. So now he has a work for you. He has purpose for your life. This is an active participation. He wants you to do something, and he wants you to be something. Those two things, which we always at this church are trying to wrestle with. It's why we have small group ministry, so that you can be what you should be. It's why we have regular teaching, so that you can learn and deepen your spiritual walk. But we also want you to do something. That's why we have opportunities for service. That's why we invest in people who are doing things all around this world. Because you're not just supposed to be a Christian, you're supposed to do what a Christian does. I was only 14 years old, when a group of individuals around this world got together in a city in Switzerland called Lausanne. Lausanne also happens to be where the capital of the Olympics is. If you ever want to go there, they got a great museum. I spent a whole day there. It's totally cool. You should go there, okay? But 1974, people from around the world went to Lausanne, Switzerland, people who all believe in the same gospel that we teach here. And they tried to unify in one statement, in one place, what exactly this gospel is all about and what we should be doing. The reason I bring that up is because just this week, uh, someone in our church who is a part of administrating and dealing with the leading of our investment all around the world uh, has been going through a course that just makes him better at doing that, and he's now going to become a coordinator and facilitator of that kind of thing. And so in order to do that, he had to sign this covenant. I can remember at 14 years of age, and I know I was a little weird for 14 because I was totally into all this theology stuff, and my dad went to that conference because he was a missionary leader. And I remember talking to him about this whole concept, and there was a certain amount of controversy around it, never been done before, that we knew in time and space that, that so many people from so many countries of the world had come together and drafted one document to say, let's unify ourselves around this message of the gospel and see what we can do to share this with as many as we can. 
40 years later, that document still stands as a great testament to what this gospel is of both doing what he wants us to do and being what he wants us to be. So let me read one little part of it. The message of salvation implies also a message of judgment upon every form of alienation, oppression, and discrimination. And we should not be afraid to denounce evil and injustice wherever they exist. When people receive Christ, they're born again into his kingdom and must seek not only to exhibit but also to spread its righteousness in the midst of an unrighteous world, being and doing. The salvation we claim should be transforming us into the totality of a personal and social responsibility. Faith without works is dead. Or our own statement of faith, which you can find in our documentation right here, says we believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose in our lives. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially. And to live out our faith and care for one another in compassion towards the poor and the oppressed. You see, God wants us to do and he wants us to be. And that's why this passage says, may this great shepherd equip you with everything necessary for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. All for his glory, once again. So, be assured of this. He has something for you to do, and he has something for you to become. So, let me wrap this up. God is great and God is good. But that fact, those facts, that tension can really be lost on us. Or in his otherness, it can be overwhelming to us. So he understands that. And he has made this so understandable this way. Listen, he sent one to represent us before his otherness as a high priest. And he sent one to become one of us to complete his ownership of us as a good shepherd. So, up as a high priest, God is satisfied with your representative. Are you? Maybe you've never placed your faith in him. You're still trying to, you know, I get the whole Jesus thing and I, I'm, I'm glad for what he did, but I know that there's still stuff messed up in my life and I'm trying to get better. You can't. Only he can. That's why our faith is in him and him alone. Is he enough? Is Jesus sufficient for you? Don't let any kind of false humility or spiritual pride twist that into anything other than a total surrender to one son of God who stands before the Father and says, this one has their faith in me, and that's enough. And then, the great shepherd, be assured that because of all of that, there is peace. You don't need to be at war with God. He's got your back. He's got your best interest in mind. Part of our finishing well is understanding that it all finishes well. Oh, we've got a bunch of junk to endure 
now. But we win in the end. And one of the ways that we can keep going through all the mess is because we know in the end that we win. That God is not angry with us. That he poured out his wrath on his son and gave us the opportunity to live in peace with God. So be assured there's peace. Be assured that there's a purchase. He didn't do that for nothing. He did it because he wants you to be his and he owns you and he's good. So he's earned that title. No one else can. You're his. When that's the case, you do what he wants you to do. Not trying to work your way to heaven, but just trying to say whatever the great shepherd and the good shepherd wants of me, I'll be indebted forever. So I do what he wants me to do. And then he looks at you and goes, and that's what I want because I've got purpose for you. Be assured that there is something for you to do and something for you to become. There is purpose for your living on this earth. And he wants you to do it. And he wants to equip you with everything necessary for accomplishing what you will do and to work through you to become all that he wants you to be. Are you convinced of God's good plans for you? I want you to think about how you might ignore his peace. Do you do that? He tells you, I'm a God of peace. So we fill our lives with anxiety and worry and concern. Fear. May the God of peace through all he did give you peace. Don't ignore his peace. Ask him for it. Ask him for a deeper understanding of it. Do you deny, I mean, do you, uh, do you let him guide you as a great shepherd? Or are you one of those wayward sheep? He's purchased you. He wants you to go where he wants you to go. So will you let him guide you? Or do you deny or doubt what he's asked you to do or to become? You shouldn't because he has a purpose in it. So I want us to pray about those very things right now as we close. And think about those this week, about how you might ignore his peace, about how you may be resisting his guiding, and about whether you deny or doubt what he has for you to both do and to become. Let's pray.